Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Sabrina Berger. I'm a PhD student at the University of Melbourne, where I study the high redshift universe, both theoretically and observationally through high redshift quasars. I'm Will Saunders. I'm a fifth year PhD student at Boston University, where I study the upper atmospheres of Uranus and Neptune. And I'm Kirsten Boley. I'm a PhD candidate at The Ohio State University, where I study the impact of elemental abundances on planet formation and evolution. You're listening to episode 75, Stellar Snacks. Really excited about this alliteration. <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty hungry, so I'm, I'm good for a snack. I felt clever when I came up with this. So today, all of our astrobytes use food to explain their concepts in planetary science. It will also be the episode of me trying to relate everything back to cooking and food in a very silly way, so brace yourself. But we hope today's episode will not only whet your appetite for your next meal, but also planetary science. I'm trying not to use the word ingredients too many times in this episode. All right, Sabrina, you got to tell us what's your favorite thing to cook? Probably a vegan chana masala, guys. What is that? Really? Well, okay. I this is a whole thing. One time I went on this website. It's called Tasty. Have you guys heard of it? No. Mm -hmm. Well, you can look up recipes. And I found this really yummy, like one pot chickpea curry recipe. Oh. And I kept making it for a couple months. And then all of a sudden I was describing this to my friend and he was like, you're making chana masala. And I didn't know it for a couple months. But <laughs> It was a chickpea curry. <laughs> I would say I'll try it, but I'm allergic to chickpeas, so I can't. Oh, no. We'll try and find a chickpea alternative. That's absolutely terrible. Chickpeas are glorious. Just imagine, <laughs> like, the falafel and also curry. Curry is, like, absolutely one of the best dishes. Any sort of curry. I don't discriminate. All right. How about those intro questions? <laughs> okay. It's dinner time for our American-based hosts, okay, guys? What ingredients are necessary to cook up an exoplanet? So how do planets form? That is right up my alley. So if you would like to bake a planet, <laughs> what you need is a little bit of rock, a dash of... <laughs> no, but seriously... So when we're thinking about the things that build planets, typically what you want is something like iron, magnesium, and silicon. So iron for the core, magnesium and silicon for the rocky bits. And then if you want to build a gas giant, you'll want to get some hydrogen and helium in there. And that's super generic. There's a lot more that goes into the actual ingredients. But there are a couple of different processes that you can start to think of when you're thinking about forming a planet. So there are two major theories. So one is called core accretion or planetesimal accretion. The idea here is that you start off with these small objects that end up smashing into each other and get bigger and bigger. 
and eventually you build up a planet embryo or a large planet and then those start to hit each other so basically you just increase in size and then the other theory is pebble accretion and so pebble accretion basically happens due to instability in the protoplanetary disk and when that happens it's the idea that these centimeter sized particles hence the name pebble end up aggregating and just continually pull in these pebble sized objects and so depending on what sort of planet you're building you can either use core accretion or pebble accretion. And then there's also things like migration that can come into play or whether or not a planet formed where it's actually orbiting. So to clarify, is the distinction between these two forming mechanisms basically the size of the rock going into the formation, like pebble versus core accretion? Yeah, 100%. What happens if you don't have any iron? Can you still form a planet? That's really interesting. There are some theories proposed where you could have a coreless planet. However, that seems quite unlikely because when you're thinking about abundances in general, if you increase one, you're going to increase the others. So more than likely, you could have a planet with a really tiny core. Mm. But, I mean, it's not completely ruled out that we can't have a coreless just ball of rock floating around. I guess the protoplanetary material would have to contain almost no iron because iron is the densest, right? It sinks to the center. You can't really get rid of iron once it forms into the planet. Mm -hmm. So I'm imagining what kind of environment would have had no iron because there would have been no previous high mass stars to create iron before. Certainly no planets that exist today maybe if there were planets for the early populations of stars well also don't we take our understanding that iron is at the center of every planet just because that's the only way we know planets cores can form basically or we just have like the earth and other planets in our solar system as an example so maybe there's some like exotic formation going on in another solar system across the universe you could totally have some different materials i think iron is a good assumption not just because our solar system has planets with an iron core, but also because it's common enough and heavy enough that you could make basically cores out of it. But you can also have like nickel in the core, which is a theory that's for Earth as well. So you can totally have different things other than iron, but they're just kind of correlated. So most likely if you've got magnesium and silicon, you're going to have at least some amount of iron. Super cool. Thanks for telling us about fruity pebble, I mean pebble accretion. <laughs> <laughs> My friend was wearing a hat last night that looked like fruity pebbles on her hat, but she didn't know because she's British, but I don't think they have that in the UK. Anyway, fruity pebbles. But speaking of <laughs> ingredients, which one makes Mars red? Right. I'll take this one. So as Kirsten explained, planets have lots of heavy metals. In astronomy, metal is anything heavier than helium on the periodic table. Most of the smaller planets lose their gaseous envelope pretty early. They just don't have enough mass to hold on to it, which was the case for Earth and Mars, which lost the hydrogen and helium, but held on to some of the lighter gases a little bit longer. 
as we discussed, there's iron in the core, but the interesting case for Mars is because it's much less massive than Earth, there's more iron mixed throughout. There's less gravity to kind of suck it all down to the core. And iron rusts pretty easily via oxidation. The iron becomes iron-3 oxide, which is a molecule made of two iron atoms and three oxygen atoms. So that's a oxidation reaction. And Mars has an oxidizing atmosphere, which means there is some free oxygen, not enough to breathe, but there is enough where over a long period of time, iron will rust on the surface of Mars. We're not exactly sure how that process has occurred. We believe at one point that Mars had liquid oceans. And if you've ever left some metal out, it rusts really quickly when it rains. But when it doesn't rain, it takes a lot longer to rust. So it's possible that Mars rusted over prior to the water evaporating. But it's also possible it actually didn't, and it didn't start to rust until it became arid. But today, the red is iron oxide, it's rust, and because Mars is so arid today, the dust that gets kicked up into the atmosphere, it preferentially scatters red light, which turns Mars red. And in fact, fun fact about the dust, where's Alex for this great dust fact? He said last time how much he loves dust facts. <laughs> so the dust from Mars is responsible for the majority of the zodiacal light, which is a faint glow that we see from Earth of material scattering in the solar system. So it's a bit of a source of background light, even in the darkest sky location possible. There's always a faint glow, and that's from the dust kicked out by Mars and circling around the asteroid belt. What a fun fact. Dust always gets in the way. Mars is everywhere. It's basically red because it was burnt, like it spent too long in the oven, right? <laughs> yeah. You want to bake your Mars till it has a crispy exterior and all the free pools of water have dried up. Are we sure that someone didn't just dump a whole bunch of paprika in on accident? They wanted to do a little bit of a sprinkle. Ooh. Maybe it was the cinnamon challenge. It went horribly wrong. So we have lots of different cuisines when it comes to choosing a snack. But how does it go when choosing a cuisine of exoplanets, so like a category of exoplanet, how do we categorize them into different cuisines? So we've got a couple of different cuisines that you can choose from. There are four specifically <laughs> that we use in astronomy, but, you know, we have some other ones that we talk about in our solar system. So the ones that we have when we're talking about exoplanets are specifically Jupiter's, sub-Saturn's, sub-Neptunes, or my favorite term, mini-Neptunes, and super-Earths, which tend to include like Earth-sized planets as well. Now, what you'll find here is that we're talking about the planet size specifically. So you can also classify them by their proximity to their host stars. So then you'll end up getting hot Jupiters, warm Jupiters, cool Jupiters, and so on and so forth. But generally, we've got the terrestrial planets and the larger gas giant planets that we see in our solar system and some things that are in between that we don't, like the mini Neptunes. To just throw in a quick aside on this, awesome. I'm really interested in how we can use the ice giants from our solar system to better understand ice giant exoplanets. There's no exact analog to Uranus and Neptune, 
that we found outside the solar system, but there are a lot of different types of analogs, a size analog, a distance analog, a distance compared to the size of the star analog, so the amount of radiation that it receives. And we know so little about the ice giants in our solar system. I'm hoping to learn more about that. And then what can we actually use to extend elsewhere? So it's an interesting area of discussion. So now it's time for Will to tell us all about adding some cacao nibs on top of the burnt cake that is Mars. <laughs> Would you like to <laughs> go ahead and, and tell us about your astrobite, Will? You got it. I mean, that sounds pretty delicious. A, a nice cake with a crust and some chocolate. We could just stop and maybe make some food and then continue on a full stomach. All right, actually science for a sec. This astrobite is called Cacao Meteorite and Other Iron Nickel Meteorites on Mars. This was written by guest author Emma Harris. And this astrobite is a cross post from the sister site Geobytes, which covers all things geology. The name of this paper is Spectral Diversity of Rocks and Soils in Mass Cam Observations Along the Curiosity Rover's Traverse in Gale Crater, Mars. And this is written by Melissa Rice and others, not to be confused with Melena Rice. And it was published in the Journal of Geophysical Research Planets. Now, Curiosity is a rover on Mars and has been there since 2012. So in its 11 years on Mars, the car-sized Curiosity rover has traveled over 30 kilometers and explored the slopes of Mount Sharp within the Gale Crater. Curiosity during its time has survived a global dust storm. It's been part of efforts to detect methane on Mars. This is an ongoing debate as to whether or not Mars has methane. I think the leading belief right now is that it probably does not, but Curiosity has been a big part of this. It's seen solar eclipses by both of Mars's moons. It's made drill sites in numbers of places around the surface to measure composition, made a number of firsts of detecting different molecules, including some organic molecules. And those are just some of the amazing things that Curiosity has done in its 11 years. And it's not stopping. It's going to keep on going until it completely breaks down or the plutonium degrades to the point where it's out of energy. One of the most recent major discoveries that Curiosity had came in January of this year when it captured an image of an unusual looking rock. Now Mars, as I've said, is pretty red and while it has a lot of geographic features, the color is pretty darn similar. But this rock is actually more of a black, gray, silvery color. It has a little dust on it, but it's pretty obvious to see under the dust that it's black. It's about a foot or 30 centimeters in diameter and it got the nickname Cacao because it looks like a cacao seed from the plant, not like a processed chocolate, like the inside of the, the pod where you can see the individual seeds sort of clinging to a structure of some kind. So was this sort of a serendipitous discovery? Because you said 30 kilometers that it traversed. So I'm assuming that it wasn't visible from space. Definitely not. But Curiosity sort of stumbled upon it on its little saunter across Mars. Yeah, that's pretty much it. They take pictures constantly, and when something looks interesting, they stop and examine. That's so neat, too, because 30 kilometers isn't very far for, I guess, the people that needed to convert to miles like I did. That's only about 18 <laughs> miles over 11 years. <laughs> right. It's not making a huge amount of progress in terms of speed. 
it's making a huge amount of progress in terms of science. But you can imagine all the challenges. If curiosity is roving on its own, it can move along just fine. But when it hits a problem, it's got to be relayed back to Earth. Decisions have to be made and then back to Mars. And each back and forth can take up to maybe 10 minutes or so. When there's a problem, it can take a long time to resolve that. So it doesn't make a ton of progress like what we're used to, but it actually, 30 kilometers is pretty darn good. That's pretty lucky though, in terms of finding something like this, like finding a little cacao nib on our red velvet Mars. (laughs) Yes, as we'll see, it isn't the first and it certainly won't be the last, we hope, but it is pretty rare, yes. Now these types of rocks are called float rocks because they're not embedded in the regolith. So they were kind of recently moved, recently in the geological sense. And while it's somewhat typical to have float rocks on Mars, it's not exactly clear where this one would have come from. Maybe it could have come from some sort of impact coming down the slopes or weathering processes. No one's 100% sure, so every opportunity to discover and examine a float rock is always taken. Curiosity has two cameras that were used in this study. The mast cam, which is a camera that takes spectra and color imaging. And then there's the chem cam, which has lasers, vaporize a chunk of the rock, and then it has a spectrometer and a really tiny telescope to measure the vapors coming off of the rock and use it to determine composition. That's insane. And that's how the researchers determined this is an iron nickel rock. It's like a little mini laboratory, basically, on Curiosity. It's called formally the Mars Science Laboratory. That is the like formal name of Curiosity. So that's the whole idea is you pack a laboratory into a car and ship it to Mars and then have it be autonomous. That's quite the aerospace engineering feat, in my opinion. Absolutely. Everything's involved, right? You have chemistry, you have geology, you have engineering, you have astronomy. It's These Mars missions are truly a collaboration among all branches of science that NASA subtends. Cool. Now, in the paper, they have a really neat plot that's reproduced in the astrobite, which shows the spectral characteristics of all of the float rocks detected by Curiosity. There are tons of dots on this image, and the plot is kind of like a color-color plot. It's plotting one color in a spectral band compared to another. And you can see that most of the float rocks are lumped in one sort of region on the plot, And then you have five float rocks that just do not follow that pattern at all. And they're so clearly off to the side. And then there's a comparison to some rocks on Earth they were able to go into the lab and test and show they're also in the same part of the graph. And those five are including this one that was recently detected, the cacao rock. And the conclusion they made based on this and various other methods of studying the spectra are that these are meteorites. They are not part of the main composition of Mars. They came from space and they were ablated. So this is only the core of the meteorite that survived to the surface of Mars. Interesting. So are these meteorites vastly different from ones that have been found on Earth or comparable? Well, the challenge with meteorites on Earth is because our atmosphere is so dense compared to Mars, about 100 times denser, we have far fewer meteorites that make it as pristine. On Mars, the atmosphere does ablate away the surface, but the cores come through pretty intact. I don't think something this small would make it to the surface of Earth. So this is an opportunity to examine a type of pristine solar system object that we don't 
get on Earth. And also examine how it interacts with the Martian surface. What other information can they get out of this meteorite that maybe we couldn't get from meteorites on Earth? And maybe this is a too in-depth question, but it seems like if you have kind of a pristine meteorite on the surface of Mars, maybe we can use this to understand our solar system a little bit better. That's the motivation. I think one of the trickiest parts is doing this without a real lab is limited. There is some analysis that can be done, but this is where I sort of lost the trail of the paper. I had trouble identifying in the paper what are the big implications from this. I think this paper was so focused on the methodology of confirming their meteorites, of comparing them to each other, summarizing the curiosity detections, that I didn't see where it talks about the implications for understanding the history of the solar system or of Mars. It might be early yet in studying these objects, and they might be waiting for things to move a little bit further along before it's possible. So unfortunately, I don't really know much more than this. I feel like that makes sense, though, just because the complexity of shining a laser at this rock and then doing spectroscopy, like, all with this rover on Mars, I mean, it makes sense that the methodology... I think, is a whole paper in itself. Yeah, there could be a part two coming out where they actually end up talking about the implications because I imagine that it would be very interesting to see if this tells us anything about maybe the meteorites that are close by or whether or not, you know, it matches. They can do a little bit more studying of this or maybe, you know, the next rover they send over will will have some cool new gadgets. That could be. Certainly when Mars sample return is complete and we have samples to examine on Earth, if there is one of these in that sample, it would be pretty incredible to examine. But I think the major takeaway here is that Curiosity continues to discover interesting things, that the pristine environment of the solar system can actually be studied from Mars, maybe a little bit better than from Earth. And Curiosity will continue doing it's great exploration. It's in its fourth extended mission, shows no sign of stopping. And maybe we'll answer some big questions about the history and evolution of Mars. But for now, I think we're going to be a little bit limited on what we can know about these meteorites. Wow. Well, thank you so much for that astrobite, Will. It's really nice to talk about a rover. Like, I feel like we haven't talked a lot about the NASA science missions in our solar system, at least since I've been a host. Maybe you all did an episode before that. You know, it's really not been a topic we've talked about a lot. And now that I've been more connected with people involved in those, I have some insights and thoughts about the way that things run. And I'd be curious to have a larger discussion about that. Yeah, maybe that's a future beyond episode or we should do an episode solely on NASA rover solar system science. I'm keen. I think it's bigger than one episode, but it's a nice idea. <laughs> a summary episode. <laughs> Okay, so thanks, Will, again for that astrobite. Now let's move into this spicy sonification where <laughs> hopefully <laughs> you all will get this one.
Okay. Wow. Anyone have any thoughts? Excited to hear what you all think. I feel like this is a tough one, mostly because we don't typically get a piano. Mm. Any guesses? Mm. I think I want to say something that's periodic. Yeah. Well, some part of it was periodic. That's right. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe orbits or something, but I feel like orbits would sound better. Asteroids, maybe? Orbits is on the right track. Something about orbits? Do you have any guess as well? <laughs> it sounded pretty stochastic to me, so maybe it's something about all the exoplanet orbits. Okay, I think you all actually got it, and I'm sorry <laughs> because I feel like we've done a lot of exoplanet orbit sonifications, but I swear, this one's different. I like it. I thought it was good. So this is actually a sonification of Kepler orbits, but separately. There was one on the transit method. There was that one that kind of simultaneously played a bunch of orbits a couple episodes mm -hmm. ago. So this sonification is by Professor Jason Stefan at University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And it was inspired because they watched a YouTube video that said you couldn't get any science out of sonification. So fast forward, he made this sonification where the volume is set by the size of the planet. The lowest note is set by a period of the largest planet, so lower note means a longer orbital period, which makes sense since frequency is the inverse of period. And then Jason sent this to Dan Fabricky, who's a professor at UChicago who studies planetary dynamics. I think he's a theorist. And basically, they were trying to use this to study a bunch of Kepler orbits in a different way than they usually do. So rather than visually, they wanted to study it through the sonification. And Dan Fabricky was actually pretty supportive and optimistic of this and found that systems that sound less dissonant formed in a more gentle way than those that sound more dissonant. Oh. Whoa. We can study these systems individually through sound. Maybe we can discern more science by doing that. And so the last one that you heard is KOI 4032. So that's four confirmed planets and a fifth candidate. And basically, they said that this sonification basically helped them understand a bit more about how this planetary system formed and sort of picked it out from all of the different planetary systems as being really interesting just by listening to it. Really? That is so cool. And Dan Fabricky actually said, I quote... Planetary dynamicist here. For resonance structure, it seems sound is in a better position than sight to do the job of picking out frequencies in particular. So it really points to the different ingredients that are needed to work out what an orbit means and kind of is sort of an optimistic look at what sonification could potentially do, especially for looking at these huge, large surveys. If you can listen to the survey, potentially you can learn more. I know that kind of reminds me of that movie Contact where Jodie Foster goes up to the radio telescope and like they translate the radio spectrum into something that she can hear and then that's how she discovers extraterrestrial intelligence. <laughs> I mean that's you know that's way way further out from this but it's kind of reminiscent of that kind of idea which is a lot of fun. That's such a unique way of thinking about these systems and actually pretty smart because we know that you can use sonification to understand things or end up seeing things that you wouldn't normally see with your actual eyes 
Yeah, so just a slightly different exoplanet sonification than we've seen before. That was a really great sonification. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. I'm still not over. That was that was maybe one of the best ones we've heard in a long time. Oh, yeah, for sure. Really? Aw. I, I also want to add that when we talked about our sonification episode last time, and it was all about education, right? Th- that's what this kind of is, is you can do things with sonification that you can't do without. And that's the whole idea is can it be more than just a tool? Can it be at the cutting edge of research? But yes, I know we have to move on. So can you imagine maybe listening to two hours of like sonified, maybe supernova data, planetary transits, and then that's almost an easier way than visually inspecting it sometimes like maybe your ear can pick up things that your eyes can't. It's a really cool concept. Honestly, that makes me want to try it because I can't tell you how many thousands of light curves that I've looked at trying to detect a planet. Still haven't found one yet. But yeah, no, I think that that was an amazing sonification. So thank you for bringing us that. Thanks for listening, guys. So now Kirsten is going to tell us how stars create different types of delectable treats or exoplanets. So right along the same kind of concepts we were thinking about for the sonification. Yeah. So the astrobite that I'm going to be talking about is called The Great Planet Bake Off. And it was written by Mark Poppinchalk. And so the idea behind this paper and what this paper is going to really get at is it's going to tell us how the recipe might change between planet types when you're looking at an M-dwarf star doing the cooking of your planet. One of the things that people are particularly interested in is how small planets form and evolve. And this is for several different reasons. So usually when we start to think about how these planets form and evolve, we end up coming back to this question of habitability and the question of, are we alone? And that's kind of the major driver behind this. And another interesting thing is that since we've been discovering planets specifically using the transit method, which is as a planet orbits its host star, it blocks out a little bit of light. And when it does that, we end up seeing these dips and we can detect the planets. And through this method, we've noticed some interesting things about these small planets. We've noticed that we tend to find small planets orbiting M-dwarfs more often than other types of stars. So M-dwarfs are the smallest stars that we can have, basically. And we can, I guess we could get into a debate about whether or not you want to call a brown dwarf a star <laughs> or not. But I think that as of right now, I think that that is out and we are not calling those stars. But... Basically, we know that small planets like to form around M-dwarfs, and M-dwarfs are also easier for detecting these planets. So just to give you some idea, since they're so much smaller, they block out even more light when a planet transits than a star like our sun. Mm -hmm. So where an Earth-sized planet would block out around 2% of an M-dwarf's light, the Earth blocks out about 0.2%. 0.1% of our sun's light if it were to be an exoplanet. So different orders of magnitude. And then another interesting thing that has happened and that we've seen with these M-dwarf planets is that they tend to form in 
basically like a whole system. You don't usually get one by itself if you find a terrestrial planet or a small planet. You end up having multiples of those planets, like maybe a few. And so this has happened often enough that people call this a peas in a pod theory, which is kind of cute. And back on the food theme. Peas. <laughs> I know. I had to bring it up. But yeah, so that's kind of the reason why this work was particularly interested in trying to look at planets that are orbiting M dwarfs to try and say something about how they're forming. And so what they did is they constructed a sample of 43 planets that orbit around 26 M dwarfs. So that already shows that the peas in a pod theory is working great. One of the important things that they made sure to do with this sample and why it is kind of really small is that they needed to make sure that the planets had accurately measured masses and radii for the planets. And by accurate, I mean with mass uncertainties less than 25% and with radius uncertainties of less than 8%. And the reason why you would want this is when you start trying to characterize planets and say something about how puffy they are or how dense they are, you end up needing to have pretty precise measurements. Otherwise, they could all be everything, right? So does this peas in the pod phenomenon that's happening with these planets make it so that we can more accurately measure the radius and mass of a planet like by them being sort of coupled gravitationally i haven't seen anyone actually specifically use this to constrain the masses or radius of planets but i think that if you could say the degree to which they are similar and have a range that would actually probably be something that you could do so maybe you've just given us an idea for helping classify planets. I'm sure that someone's already done it. Maybe I'm just misunderstanding it because it's not that they're like closer together than other planets in a planetary system. It's more that they formed like little peas in a pod, like they were twins or something when they were forming. Yeah, so it's more of that they're all about the same size, but also they are a bit closer too because M dwarfs have a smaller protoplanetary disk than FGK stars. So you do actually also end up getting them a bit closer too. They're a little bit more friends. <laughs> but yeah, so basically what this paper did is something that is commonly done within the exoplanet community in, when you're trying to characterize planets. And what they did is basically use this mass radius diagram to initially plot these planets. So the mass radius diagram will really kind of tell you how dense a planet is or how puffy it is. And from there, you can start to see different populations arise. You can end up seeing what they have is a rocky planet population water worlds, and gas-rich planets. Something that I didn't mention before is that this sample of small planets is actually a sample that includes many Neptunes, so planets that are smaller than a radius of four Earth radii. And this means that you're not just looking at terrestrial planets here. So that's what the gas-rich planets would end up being here. So what they did is plot this planet population. And they also use these planet growth models to test theories on how these planets could have formed 
that would match the data that they're seeing. And one of the things that they implemented during their research is instead of looking at mass and radius, they also looked at the density ratio. Hmm. And by density ratio, I mean the density of the planet divided by Earth's density. And that gives you an idea of for a similar mass planet, if you were to say Earth was X mass, what would we expect the density to be? And so they looked at this density ratio versus mass. And one of the results that they found is that by looking at it in density versus mass space, they actually were able to see very distinct populations, whereas when they were looking in mass radius space, some of the water-rich planets kind of overlapped with the rocky planet regime and same with the gas planets. But when they looked in this density space, it was very clear-cut that these populations were very separate, which is kind of interesting. And it has a few implications for planet formation. Because they have such distinct regions of density mass space that they take up, this points to the fact that they probably formed via pebble accretion like we talked about before, as opposed to planetesimal accretion. And the reason why we would think that is because planetesimal accretion, you would expect to find a smooth transition from different planet types as opposed to these sharp, distinct regions. And another interesting result is that they found that the rocky planets tended to be closer to their star than the water-rich planets, which kind of makes sense if you're thinking about migration and the fact that we think that water-rich planets form beyond the ice line, which means further out in the protoplanetary disk and could potentially migrate in further. This kind of is in line with that theory that water worlds form further out in the protoplanetary disk and migrate in, whereas rocky planets form closer in and either have all of their stuff evaporated or they basically didn't have any or much water in their rock at all. And then the last pretty big thing that they found is that their models that they were using actually do reproduce this pretty nicely, this result, when using the pebble accretion model. So this was kind of an interesting paper, and I think that, yeah, it could have some implications for planet formation. I see. It's the lack of the in-between case, right, that, that says that it's got to be pebble accretion in this scenario. Yeah, exactly. Okay, what if it just formed quickly and there just isn't a lot of in-between stage? In terms of having pebble accretion as the formation mechanism? What if it was the planetesimal method, but it formed so much quicker than we thought that there isn't a long time when the planetesimals are in that stage, so we actually wouldn't expect to see many of them? That's a totally valid point. I think that also one of the things that I was thinking about, too, that could be interesting is that the planets that we have, because we're basing this on 43 planets, that's a pretty small planet population when you're considering right. the 5,000 planets that we're considering. There's something that biases these planets to where they have such accurate mass and radii measurements. So could there be something there that's biasing the sample towards you know, these distinct regions just because of something that we're doing observationally as well. So I think that that's a totally valid critique. Maybe you're right. Maybe there's something else going on and they could have formed faster. Definitely need a larger sample size, but it sounds like it's a pretty good study. Super interesting. 
Yeah, for sure. Thanks so much, Kirsten, for telling us all about that astrobite and how planets are formed or baked, as we like to call it in this episode. So now it's time for our one-sentence summaries. Kirsten, do you want to go ahead and give us yours? So, if you want to figure out how to bake your favorite planet, its density could point you to the ingredients and temperature needed for that recipe. What about you, Will? When humans eventually journey to Mars, we won't have to pack any chocolate because there's enough of the cacao meteorite to go around. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. I love that. (laughs) An expensive piece of chocolate. Most expensive in the world. A delicacy formed by the universe. All chocolate was formed by the universe, Sabrina. I mean, you know what I mean. Okay, so we talked about meteorites in this episode. We talked about exoplanets forming. I know meteorites are important in understanding planetary formation. Chondrites is a buzzword that comes to my mind, but I kind of forget what exactly that is. So can we kind of synergize these two astrobites? Like what synergize? The whole point of astro sound bites. Why are meteorites important in exoplanet science? First, I just have to explain what a chondrite is. I never thought it would get brought up here. So basically, chondrites are little rocks that have never gone through any sort of deformation in terms of like heat or anything like that. And they're really cool because they have these chondrules, which are basically like droplets of rock almost, but they're these circular little things within the rock and they're really light. I've inherited a couple of chondrites. You have them? And I love them. Where'd you get them? Are they meteorites? They are meteorites. Yes. Ooh. That is so cool. Do they give you sort of a first glimpse about what like the early solar system might have looked like? Chemical abundances and stuff? Or what's the point of it? Yeah, that's the whole idea. So if you can get these pristine samples, of course, like once it comes into the atmosphere, you're going to char the outsides. Right. The one that I have, it's basically like a slice of one of them. So you can actually see the chondrules and stuff inside. So it's like it got baked on the outside. Is it good with butter? You know, I haven't tried it yet with butter, but I really should get on that. Everything is better with butter. (laughs) Well, it sounds delicious. Probably be a little crunchy. But yeah, the whole idea is that we could figure out what was in the protoplanetary disk. Amazing. I think one of the great areas of synergy in planetary science is, and I mentioned this earlier, using what we know about the solar system to study exoplanets. And it's so tough because we can get up close on Mars and on Earth and measure so many things. And we've also landed on asteroids and comets, and we can measure those. We're never going to be able to measure exoplanets up close. So never probably in the sense of like any useful time frame for people living or future people. So I think the way that we can use as much context as possible in planet formation and then relate it back to things we know to be true from our solar system, we can actually make reasonable inferences about other planetary systems. So in in the case of studying meteorites on Mars, the question is like, how does the meteorite on Mars differ than the meteoroid orbiting in space? You know, we can do that comparison and see maybe how long the one has been on Mars has been affected by the atmosphere of Mars or various weathering or the fact that we can see its core. And then there's an idea about how did the 
planets form in different regions? What does an asteroid here tell us about that region or a comet tell us about the far outer solar system? And then use those clues, that ground truth, when we go and have data from exoplanetary systems where we're not going to ever be able to measure detailed composition in the same way or, or inspect up close, but from a broader sense, more generalized information. So, but the trade-off is always in the solar system, we have a small sample size, but can get the best up close data. For the exoplanets, we have a much larger and rapidly growing sample size, but have to always measure them from a distance. And there's such great science you can do with both. And the more connections, I think the more powerful the science can be. This is one of the things that I always found really interesting, that solar system people and exoplanet people, it seems like there's not a ton of crosstalk. It seems like more recently, there's more of that happening where we're starting to get planetary science departments in places as opposed to just astronomy and earth science. So seems to be a lot more crosstalk, but it seems very necessary if we want to understand exoplanets to really understand the planets on our solar system. How did Jupiter form? Is that significantly different? And can we expect those in other systems? And so, or, you know, how did Earth form? Did we form inside and migrate in? Or did something deposit water onto Earth? And like all of these sorts of questions. And I think that that's really going to help us nail down what's happening for some of these exoplanets. The meteorites represent a window back into the history of the solar system that we can't currently see. So we're stuck on Earth with weathering that has ruined all of those good rocks that we started with. And on Mars, sort of the same deal, but the meteorites give us a brand new rock. And maybe we study them on Mars instead of studying them on Earth, or we study them in orbit. But it's, it's all these little clues. So you might say, well, we only have eight planets. How can that possibly help us understand the 5,000 and growing of the probably billions of others? It's like, well, we're not limited to eight data points just because we have eight planets. So basically, to sum up this whole argument, you can't know how to make a red velvet cake unless you make it at home like with a recipe book mm. you need to make it closer to home right you can eat it a million times at a restaurant from afar looks great but you really need to study it closer to home <laughs> i think that i think that nails it right there <laughs> so that concludes episode 75 of astro soundbites stellar snacks if you want to read the two astrobytes we talked about today and or the associated papers, check out the links in the show notes. We'll also link to the sonification so you can take a look at the visual aspect of it as well. And if you want to hear more of our wonderful episodes, check them all out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. Wait, was that your one cent summary? Are you saying that the cacao meteorite has no original sin? <laughs> <laughs>